Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. Mark 6 is where we're going to be. I'll tell you a story, though, before we jump into Mark. This week, Foster, our middle son, was out in the cove playing with all the neighborhood kids, and Lindsay's watching him from the kitchen window, and they're just kind of huddled together, standing around talking. And suddenly, Foster just turns out of that huddle, and he marches into the house, opens the back door, swings open, marches by Lindsay, goes upstairs, comes back down, starts heading out the door, and Lindsay notices he has a Bible under his arm. And she says, baby, what are you doing? And he said... I'm going to tell them what really happened to Jesus. <laughs> Which is funny because he can't read. <laughs> I mean, it's a picture Bible. I guess he was going to show them what really happened to Jesus. Uh, I wish I could have heard the conversation. I didn't get to hear it. But this passage here in Mark 6, this is one of those things that really happened to Jesus. It's one of those things we don't talk about all the time, but this happened to him. Namely, he was rejected, is what we're going to see here. But let me set up Mark 6 for us. You may remember a couple weeks ago, we were finishing Mark 5, and Mark 5 ends with the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler who comes, synagogue leader who comes desperately to Jesus, desiring more than anything that Jesus' power would be at work in his life and specifically in the life of his daughter, who's very ill. He comes pursuing Jesus with everything he has, hoping that Jesus has the power to heal his daughter. And then in the middle of that story, that story is interrupted by the story of a woman who comes crawling to Jesus in the midst of a great crowd, makes her way to Jesus, desperate just to touch his cloak, believing if she can just touch his cloak, that he has the power to heal her. In both of these stories, you see, you see two people who want Jesus to be something extraordinary, something incomparable, a power beyond any other power this world has ever seen. And it turns out he is that. But then you come in Mark 6 to Jesus' hometown. And instead of a group of people who are pursuing Jesus, with everything they have, desperate that Jesus be this great, incomparable thing. We have here in Mark 6 a group of people whom Jesus has to come to himself, who are not out pursuing him, who don't want anything from him. They're fine. Thank you. And that's where we pick up. This is Mark 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus left that place and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. We'll talk about that next week. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were surprised. Where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom he's been given? What about the powerful acts, the miracles accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? You know, isn't he Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? I mean, are his sisters right here with us? And they were repulsed by him. Literally, they were scandalized by him. And they fell into sin. And Jesus said to them, prophets are honored everywhere 
except in their own hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own households. And he was unable to do any miracles there. Pay attention to that. He was unable to do any miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he was appalled by their disbelief. Jesus is going home and there is no place like home, right? I got to preach at the church I grew up at a couple of years ago. I got to go home for this summer series they were doing and I got to preach at my home church. I got to go home. And I'll tell you, I was nervous about this because um, these people really know me. You know, these people, they don't know preacher Eric. They know preacher son Eric. And there's a big difference between those two things. Um, they remember when I played baseball in the sanctuary with some of my buddies. I didn't go well, for the record. They remember, I, you know, I, have, I have this vivid memory, too, of the night we were at this uh, youth retreat, this youth gathering, and we were in rooms with chaperones, all of us, and the word got out that in Eric Gentry's room, the preacher's son room, that those three little boys had kept the chaperone up literally the whole night. And I have this vivid memory of that night at 3 a.m. I remember looking at the clock and he in desperation, our chaperone just started yelling at us. He was so put out. We just kind of shrugged that off and kept talking. So my dad runs this church. <laughs> he put the pillow over his head and finally went to sleep. And then they were also there, kind of the most infamous episode in, in my history. It was the first story I ever told. I told you the story. First story I ever told at this church. Do you remember this story? Almost nine years ago. You remember this story? You want me to tell it? I'll tell it again. Uh, my dad was a preacher, as I've said, and so I would beg my mom to let my dad sit by me on the front row. And uh, she would be off wrangling my sister somewhere else in the church or teaching a Sunday school or something like that. And so I would beg my mom to let me sit by my dad. And every once in a while, when my behavior was good, she'd let me. And that, that was fine during the singing and the praying because dad's right beside me. But but during the preaching, it presents a problem and that there's now this little boy alone and unattended in the front of the church where everybody can see him and his dad can't reach him. And so um, I've always been keenly aware of when a sermon goes too long. Don't some sermons just go too long? Can I get an amen on that? I never hear, but theoretically sermons have gone too long in other places. And so I, I guess six or seven-year-old Eric was just was just aware that this sermon of his dad's had just gone on too long. So I flipped to the coloring book my mom had given me to keep me busy and on the blank back page in dark blue crayon, I wrote as large as I could, how much longer? <laughs> and then I held it up for his dad. And, well, he ignored me. So uh, I stood on the pew and I turned the sign to the congregation <laughs> to gain support for my cause. And, that was the last time I sat on the front row. <laughs> I've gotten so much mileage out of that story. I, I tell that story everywhere I go. My dad hates that story. And, um, but I was returning a couple summers ago to the scene of the crime. And I was going back home to the people who had actually seen this happen. Uh, I knew that in the audience that evening when I came to preach there at the church would be the elder's wife who was on the second pew that morning, right there. And I was nervous about going back, but I'll tell you, I went back knowing these people really know me, knowing all that stuff. And it was like none of those things had ever happened. 
I mean, they were so glad to see me. Everybody was coming up and hugging me. I didn't remember a lot of these people. They remembered me. They were squeezing my cheeks. I remember that elder's wife came up to me. She's squeezing my cheeks really hard. She says, now, how many boys do you have? And do you let them sit on the front row? (laughs) Ironically enough, one of my kids is on the front row right now. We'll see how that goes. Um, And then I remember that chaperone who had been in that hotel room with us that night, just losing his mind. At us. I remember he came up to me. He's older. He's gray now. He comes up to me, pats me on the back. He says, Eric, you turned out all right. He said, there's nothing like going home. No place like home. Except it would seem for Jesus. Except for him. He's going back to his hometown. And I think that he expects a reception like I got. He thinks these people are going to be so glad to see him. These people who apparently had heard of the miracles he's been doing, had been heard of the teaching. He'd been teaching throughout the land. He thinks he's going to come home. And these people are going to be so glad to see him. These are his people. You know, Nazareth was a small town. Nazareth, maybe 150 to 200 people, about the size of the, the folks in this room this morning. Smaller, actually. Small town. It's the kind of place where everybody knows your name. And everybody here knows Jesus. And you got to think he's going back. He's so excited. He's reading his disciples, all of his new buddies. Guys, you're going to love this place. This is Nazareth. But, you know, it's a small town. That's why Nathaniel says about Nazareth, remember this, he says, can anything from Nazareth be good? Which is exactly the kind of thing that somebody who's not from a small town would say. But Jesus, he loves this place. These are his people. And they know him. They really know him. But curiously enough, it would seem that that is the problem. That they know him so well that they can't actually see him for who he really is anymore. Um, Have you ever known somebody like that? I mean, you just know him so well that you don't really know him anymore. I want to give you an example, and I'm ashamed to share this, but let let me share it. Um, my mom grew up, I know she's watching, so that got to me. <laughs> Woo. So my mom, you know, I grew up every, every day from kindergarten to high school, senior year, my mom made me the lunch, packed the lunch. And so I'm so ashamed to admit this, but I can remember vividly how annoyed I would get with my mom when she would pack me peanut butter and jelly when I wanted turkey and cheese. Just so put out. Now, even though I had wanted peanut butter and jelly for the last six months, suddenly, you remember this, overnight something would change, and the thought of another peanut butter and jelly sandwich would make me lose my mind. And so mom would run to the store and get turkey and cheese or ham and cheese or whatever it was for the next four to six months. And I remember how put out I would get when she would pack the wrong sandwich. And I think in all those years, every day. I mean, I can probably count on my hand the number of times I bought my lunch at school. Every day my lunch was waiting on me. And I think somewhere in all of those years, I lost sight of the fact that my mom, Lynn Gentry, who at one time was, was Lynn Markle, you know, who won beauty pageants across the state of Kansas, who was like the star actress in her plays at Oklahoma Christian, gave up this dream she'd had since she was a girl 
to go to Broadway and so that she could be a preacher's wife. Oh my goodness. Who wants to be a preacher's wife? You know, and it's like, she's the most overworked and unpaid volunteer at every church my dad ever served at and teach Sunday school, host these big plays. She went on to write all these like Christian books to try to encourage people in their faith. And she would get up early every morning. She'd spend time in the word so that on my napkin and every one of those lunches, she could send me a Bible verse or a, a word about how much God loved me. And at some point, you know, mom became no longer all of those extraordinary things, but just my lunch maker. Just the woman who made my lunch every day. And I'm so ashamed to say that. And I say it now because I know she's watching. And mom, I want you to know, I know you're so much more. I gotta stop talking about people I love. <laughs> gotta stop, start talking about people I don't care about. Whew. Uh, but also because don't you know, I mean, don't, don't you resonate with that? There are people you know so well that you stop knowing them. And you don't want them to be extraordinary. Who wants that in their mom? You know, you don't want that from them. And I think that's what happened when happens when Jesus goes home. When Jesus begins to teach this person they've known so long that they really know they don't want him to be extraordinary. They don't want him to be the Lord of their lives. Certainly not that. And so they ask these questions. Where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom he's been given? What about the powerful acts accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? For the record, these aren't honest questions of like, people, who is this guy? Uh, these are passive aggressive questions. What they're saying is, who does this pipsqueak think that he is? We know this guy. We know this guy. Um, even the question, if, you, if you'll throw it back up there on the screen, if you don't mind that, even the question, isn't this Mary's son, uh, is a veiled insult. It's one that we probably don't catch in our world. But in, in his world, it was important that he be known as Joseph's son. And so probably this is an insult about the very questionable birth story that Jesus has. And who would know that story except the people who really know him? And why bring up that, that story right now unless you're trying to bring him down? Now, this, like Foster says, is what really happened to Jesus, this rejection. Did you know that this story takes place in all the gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And also it's probably alluded to in John. Remember in John chapter one, when John says about Jesus that his own people didn't welcome him, his own people. This is probably the story he's talking about. I want you to think with me for a second. If you were going to write a fictional story, you knew it was a fiction, but you wanted to write it in such a way that it convinced other people to believe in it. You might include in that story people who rejected him, but those would be the bad guys, like the Pharisees, for instance, in these stories. But if you were writing a fictional story that you hoped others would believe, you would not include in that story the people who knew him best, 
who rejected him. You wouldn't include that. Which is in its own way an evidence that this is one of those things that really happened to Jesus. In Luke's version of this story, we're told that, that Jesus teaches when he comes home. In Luke's version, we're actually told what he teaches. So he comes into the synagogue and this is, he begins to read from Isaiah and this is what he says. And the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they're all like, hoorah, that sounds so good. And then Jesus says, oh, wait, I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking about everybody else. Uh, and this would kind of be like, you know, if I was preaching a sermon to you and you all left in the last few sentences, you're all super encouraged. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm not talking about you guys. Y'all are hopeless. You wouldn't like that. That would be what we call in preaching a moving sermon. That was a dad joke right there. Okay. But Mark leaves that out. And this is why. Because Mark's version of the story is trying to get us to connect with what a reality that I think is really much more important for those of us who are very familiar with Jesus to consider. Okay. That that is the people most familiar with Jesus can reject him. You know, how do I say this? Based not so much on what he teaches or does, but based on who they want him to be. That sometimes we get what we want from Jesus. We get what we want. Let me try to explain that. Remember, I set up this story in Mark 6 by talking about Mark 5. And in Mark 5, you have Jairus who is desperate for the power of Jesus, the power of God through Jesus to work in his life and in the life of his daughter. He wants more than anything for this guy, Jesus, to actually be the Lord, the master of all. That's what he wants. And then you have this woman who comes desperately crawling to Jesus, wanting more than anything that Jesus be the son of God. Because only the son of God will have the power to heal in her body when no one else has had the power to heal. So you have these two people who want Jesus to be glorious and grand and incomparable. Okay. And then you have these people at his hometown who don't want that from Jesus. They don't want him to be powerful. They won't want him to be great. And they certainly don't want this guy, this pipsqueak, to be master of their life. And do you notice what happens? For Jairus and the woman, Jesus' power overwhelms them. For the people in Jesus' hometown, well, Jesus' power doesn't work. Either he chooses not to exercise his power or he is prevented from exercising his power. I think it's probably the first. He chooses to take his power and move on. In fact, we're told he never comes back to Nazareth. Jesus and his power, they never go back home because of what he finds there. Um, I was reading last night. This is um, like against my rules to change my sermon the night before. But I'm going to trust this was from the Spirit. I was reading from, uh, also because it's from C.S. Lewis, I was reading <laughs> from The Magician's Nephew to my boys last night. And, um, 
this passage, I think, captures what I'm trying to describe here, that, that who we want Jesus to be affects the Jesus we get sometimes. And so um, in The Magician's Nephew, you have these two children, Diggory and Polly. And through some magical power, they arrive in the land of Narnia. This is before the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They arrive in Narnia when Aslan, who's the lion, who is the Christ figure, is creating Narnia. And they arrive in the darkness, and they hear this beautiful song. And as the song is being sung, light dawns on the horizon, and suddenly these mountains begin to take shape around them. And grass and trees and plants sprout up all over the land around them, and they see this lion walking towards them singing. And as Aslan, the lion, sings, animals begin to jump up out of the ground, and he speaks to those animals, and it gives them the ability to speak and come to life and to be animated. And all of those animals gather around him, and they begin to speak to one another as Aslan speaks and sings these like words of creation and life into them. And watching along with these two, Diggory and Polly, is Uncle Andrew. Uncle Andrew is not a good guy. <laughs> he has a power of his own. And when he sees power in this line that is so much greater than his own power, he is scandalized by what he sees, much like the people in the hometown of Jesus. This is not what he wants. He doesn't want somebody with more power than him. Because that would mean this person would have power over him, and he doesn't want that. So watch what happens. When the great moment came and the beasts spoke, the animals, he, Uncle Andrew, missed the whole point. For a rather interesting reason, when the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized the noise was a song, and he had disliked that song very much. It made him think and feel things. He did not want to think and feel. And then when the sun rose and he saw that singer was a lion, well, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and then it had never been singing, only roaring as any lion would in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. And now the trouble about trying to make yourself more foolish than you really are is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. And he soon did not hear anything. Sorry, he soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he'd wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. Sometimes we get what we want. Sometimes we get what we want. Now, in the Jesus stories, we have those who reject them like the Pharisees. But I don't, I don't connect with the Pharisees. They're the bad guys. This story presents a, a problem that's much closer to home. And that you have people who are very familiar with Jesus, who know him very well, who reject him. Because they don't want him to really be Lord of their life. They don't want him to have power over their lives. Sure, they wouldn't mind if his power was on display in their life. 
but they don't want his power over their life. At staff meeting this last week, we were talking about the extraordinary things that we have seen God do among us in this church over the last year during this pandemic. Just remarkable things. And we've reflected on the fact that like, that's what makes church church. That's what makes us different than your social club down the street or a school or a a nonprofit just working in the community. What makes church church is that we expect, we count on the power of God working among us. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. We talked about this, the resurrection power of God by which God brings Jesus Christ back to life is working among us. We read. But look at this story in Mark 6. There is apparently something that can extinguish that power in our midst. Okay. And that's a frightening thought. And then we thought about that as a staff. What if Jesus took his power and went somewhere else? We would cease to have a reason to exist. Who those most familiar with Jesus want him to be will affect their experience of Jesus in this world. I mean, we have got to pay attention as students of the word, those who love and long for Jesus, we have got to pay attention. If what makes us unique is the body of Christ on earth, is the power of God and Jesus Christ among us, we have got to pay attention to the few places we're told that power picks up and goes somewhere else. So here's what I want to do as we end. Maybe you've, you grabbed the, the pieces of the Lord's Supper as you walked in. If not, they're back there on the table, the, the bread and the cup. I want to use this time together today as a time of reflection. Because I think this, this story is an opportunity to reflect. It's an opportunity for those who are most familiar with Jesus. Those who kind of see themselves as Jesus' hometown. Jesus' people, to reflect on who do I really want Jesus to be for me? Do I want him to be Lord of my life or do I want him to be less than that? Well, less than that doesn't cut it. If you want to experience his power in your life, you have to want his power over your life. So let's pray and I'm gonna, I want us to think about that together. God, as we take this meal in which we remember your body broken, your blood shed for us. God, we remember what your son Jesus did for our sakes. That not only was he rejected in his hometown, but he was rejected everywhere. That his own people didn't welcome him and that rejection was what sent him to the cross. God, our lives are marked by that story as we take his body and blood into us. We believe that we are filled with his power. God, help us to desire Jesus for who he really is. Help us to not be content with Jesus as partner, Jesus as cliche, Jesus as mantra. God, we want Jesus, your son, to be our Lord. God, let his power fill our lives, both in and through us. 
God and over us. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take this meal together.